0: If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we're looking specifically at verses 13 all the way to chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As I said to you last time, this is one unit. The chapter break does not mean a different subject is being dealt with. It is one chapter unit, and we're going verse by verse through the book of James, and I've entitled this section, Resolving Conflict, Part 2. Have you ever been in a conflict before? Maybe some of you are embroiled in one right now. All of us know that conflict can be beneficial or it can be destructive based on our response. And James probably wrote one of the earliest epistles, was writing to a Jewish community. Many of them were engaging in acrimony with one another. They were fighting, they were fussing. There was a lot of dissension. And so James has to address this issue. And the way he addresses it, is he says in chapter 4, verse 1, and he asks a question here. He says, what is the source of wars? That means battles and fights. That would be personal skirmishes among you. In other words, James asks this question. He asks one in chapter 3 because you and I know that when people ask us questions, it gets us to think. And James wants them to realize that they have a problem in the church and that he has the solution. And so he asked this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? I recently read an article and it was entitled this, terrorist cell groups discovered in today's churches. Their leader, the article said, is Osama bin Lucifer. He has trained these groups to destroy the body of Christ. Here are the names of some of the terrorist cell groups in the churches today. Bin sleeping, bin complaining, been inactive, been worldly, been greedy, been missing, and then, of course, been arguing. See, Satan uses conflict in the church, conflict in homes, conflict in our government in order to sow seeds of discord so that people will basically fall apart. Jesus said a house divided itself cannot stand. I was reading about a church in North Carolina that was embroiled in all these kinds of fights the article said this, quote, authorities say a dispute over leadership of the church in western North Carolina turned from angry words to fist fights. About 30 police officers from five agencies were called to break up fights Sunday at Greater Zion Baptist Church in Fletcher, about 94 miles west of Charlotte. Henderson County Sheriff's Captain Jerry Rice said the brawl is under investigation. No one appears to have been seriously hurt. Rice said there were about 75 people at the church when police arrived, but not all of them were scuffling. Church members are divided over the recent ouster of the Reverend Lavonia Ray as pastor of the church. The fighting apparently began over whether a vote should be held to reinstate him, end quote. Churches are not immune from fighting with one another, and it's a bad testimony before the world. And see, the Bible calls us to unity in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, there are many verses I can use, but this is a good one. Paul says this. You've read it before. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't say generate unity because the Bible says we already have unity in the body of Christ. Positionally, we are all one in Jesus Christ. And so my goal and your goal is to preserve that unity. And to preserve unity, you've got to work hard at it. To preserve unity in families, you got to work hard at it. To preserve unity with your children, with your co-workers, whatever it is, you have to work hard at preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, what James is going to do in this section of Scripture from verse 13 of chapter 3 all the way to chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, he's going to give us five strategies, five principles on how you and I can resolve conflict. And again, this is not exhaustive, but... It is foundational in helping us resolve conflict. Let's look at the first two that we looked at last week, and we'll pick up the remaining three for this morning. First of all, I noted for you, if you're going to resolve conflict, you must produce the fruits of the Spirit or cultivate them. Now, I don't have time to go into this section, but we looked at chapter 3 into chapter 4, and he mentions a number of fruits of the Spirit. We know what they are, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then James lists some of his, gentleness, he mentions humility and others. Why? This is important because if you and I are going to help resolve conflict or diffuse them, we got to be the right individuals, which means this, we got to be spirit-filled Christians. It's not enough just to be a Christian, you got to be a spirit-filled Christian which means that you walk under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he produces the fruits of the Spirit. And listen, when those fruits are produced, you know what it's going to do? It's going to help diffuse conflict or resolve it. By the way, that's why Paul says, against these things there is no law. Have you ever heard a law that says, stop being patient? Stop being good to other people. Hey, man, stop having joy. There is no law against that. There are laws against the sins of the flesh in Galatians 5. Why? Because we have to restrain human nature. And so, be the right person. A second principle James gives by way of review is this. If you and I are going to resolve conflict, we must deal with the root causes that are causing the conflict. What are some of the sinful root causes that are causing conflict in your life? Now, sometimes it's not a sin problem. Sometimes it's just we agree to disagree. We see things from a different perspective. We all in our marriage have said that to our spouse. We just see it differently. Or you've said that to somebody at church, and that's fine. But here, we're talking about sinful roots that often get embedded in the human heart. And if we don't take spiritual roundup and deal with those weeds in our heart, what's going to happen is they will fester and they will produce conflict. And so whenever you're embroiled in a conflict, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, am I the problem? I need to do self-inventory. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe it's sinful attitudes in our heart. you got to deal with the junk in the trunk. If you're not willing to deal with the junk in the trunk, what's going to happen is you're going to keep being embroiled in conflict. And sometimes, you know what, you just flat out fail and you say, I'm sorry, I got in the flesh. I'm sorry, I blew it. And listen, if you're going to deal with the fruit, you got to deal with the root. And this is what often happens in our society. We don't want to deal with the root causes. We want to deal with symptoms. This is, what, this is why Washington has the problems that it has, because we don't want to deal with roots, therefore we have bad fruit. This is why cities are violent, we don't deal with roots, we want to deal with symptoms. And so we got to deal with what's on the inside. Well, there's a third principle this morning, and here's where we pick up. In resolving conflict, we must engage in prayer. We must engage in prayer. Notice, if you will, chapter 4 of James, verses 1 through 3. He says this, what is the source of fights and quarrels among you? He asks that question, and then James goes right for the juggler. He doesn't mince any words. He says, don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you. In other words, we have this internal battle, and if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living on the inside of you, but then you got this fallenness, our flesh, what Paul calls in Romans chapter 7, and the Spirit and the flesh war against one another. And listen, the flesh is simply selfishness. We want what we want. We still have that tendency towards self-centeredness, and this is what was going on in the church to whom James is writing. They had these selfish desires, and they wanted what they wanted, and that often creates conflict as James says. I was reading a story about a guy that broke into Home Depot, and he stole the forklift. I'm like, why would you steal the forklift? Well, he ends up getting out of Home Depot. He sees a woman in her car, stationary. She's sleeping. He runs into her car. It jolts her, freaks her out. She gets out of the car, starts running. He chases her down and runs her over and kills her. And then he takes her car and leaves. Why would somebody do that? Well, obviously demonic reasons, but... We know that it's selfish desires. I want what I want. I'll steal your cell phone and I will kill you in order to get what I want. And that's what James says in verse 2. You desire and you don't have it. Somebody blocks what you want, so you murder and you covet and cannot obtain it. Some of them were murdering people literally and physically, just like that guy with the forklift. But I think James here is talking about murder metaphorically. They were angry. Jesus said, if you hate your brother and you're angry, that's like committing murder. We often murder people with our words. He says here, you fight and you war with one another. But then notice what he says here. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so he introduces to us another principle here in resolving conflict, and that is engaging God in prayer. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Now, what exactly were they fighting over? We don't know exactly what it was, but we know from chapter 3 of James, he said, let not many of you become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. See, in that day, being a teacher or a rabbi was a respected position, and so many of them may have been vying for positions of authority and clout. Some of them were poor, and so maybe they wanted what some of the rich had. We don't know exactly what it was, but they were fussing and fighting with one another, and rather than praying about it and resolving the conflict, they were fighting with each other. And he says, listen, the reason you don't have is because you're not asking God. You know why some of us don't get things? Because we don't ask God. We don't talk to God in prayer. You have not because you ask not. And some of them may have been praying and they said, well, James, we're not seeing an answer to our prayer. And James says in verse 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Their motives were wrong. And this is one of the conditions in the Bible to get our prayers answered is we have to pray with right motives. Does that mean our motives are always going to be pure and perfect? No. Does it mean that if I ask God for certain needs or desires in my life that that's selfish and wrong motives? The answer is no. It's okay to ask God for personal needs, even desires. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's not name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, bark it and park it. No, that's not what it's talking about. But it's simply saying when we have needs, we need to bring them to God. And here's one of the ways that we resolve conflict. James is saying rather than fuss and fight, you need to pray over what you're dealing with. You need to pray over your needs. You need to go to God in prayer if you're struggling with something, in your marriage, with your children, with your coworkers, with your boss. In the church, we need to actively be engaging in prayer. You say, well, tell me something I don't know. Listen, as Christians, we know this, but we don't do it like we should. That's why the Bible has to repeat it over and over again. You say, but I've prayed and God is not answering my prayer. Keep praying. Keep persisting over that conflict that you're dealing with. If you have a need, rather than fuss and fight, come to God in prayer and be persistent. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and pray with the right motives. Now, I'm all for prayer. The Bible enjoins us to pray, but listen carefully. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will tap us on the shoulder and say, appreciate the prayer, I'm working, but I need you to go to that person and I need you to talk to them, and I need you to resolve the conflict. Oh, God, help my spouse. Go talk to your spouse. Go tell them you're sorry. Go deal with the issue. See, sometimes prayer becomes a substitute for resolving the issue. Sometimes God says, get off your knees and resolve the issue. And you know what? Sometimes We need a third party to help resolve the issue. Why? Because sometimes you have people that can't get along, they can't get past each other, and they need a third party. We see this in Philippians chapter four. There were two cantankerous women who were fighting with one another. And notice what Paul says to an individual in the Philippian church. He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, they weren't getting along. They weren't jiving together. He says, yes, and I ask you. He's gonna ask a third party party here. My true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, look, I I want you to help these two women. They can't resolve their issue. It's hurting the testimony of the church. Sometimes we have to go to a marriage counselor. There's no shame in that. A lot of couples struggle in the first years of their marriage. They have to seek out a counselor or somebody in the church to give them another perspective. Sometimes churches have to engage in mediation. Why? Because they can't resolve the issue. So, yes, we are to pray. If you have needs, you have desires, go to God. If you're struggling in conflict, go to God in prayer. Be persistent. Ask God with the right motives. You see, they wanted what they wanted, and they weren't concerned about God's glory. They were selfish. It would be like me saying, God, please bless me financially so I could keep up with the Joneses. Well, listen, that's a wrong motive. Plus, the Joneses have refinanced, and so you're not going to keep up with them. And so we need to engage in prayer. And you know what? Sometimes that's hard work. You want to know why God sometimes does not answer prayer right away? Here's the reason why. God can answer prayer instantly. Here's why he often doesn't is because he's teaching us dependency on him. He's teaching us to cry out to him. He's teaching us to say, God, I need you. Because when we're in conflict and we're struggling, it forces us to depend on God. And so engage in prayer. There's a fourth principle or strategy that James gives us in dealing with conflict, and that is this. We need to confess and repent of our worldly sins that are leading to the conflict. It's not enough just to identify what those sins are in our heart, but we must repent of them and confess them to the Lord. And here in verse 4, James goes right for the juggler and he says this to these worldly Christians because many of them were resolving conflict just like the world. They were entrenched in the world, they were ensconced in the world. And so he says in verse 4 Adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Now, what does he mean here? By telling them that they're worldly. Well, the Bible doesn't say we're not to love the material world and enjoy God's creation. Here, the world in the Bible is called the world system. The world system is basically the values of this age, the morals of this age, the mores of this world. The world system is that system that stands in opposition to God. We see it in government. We see it on television. We see it in schools today. The world system is Satan's administrative platform by which he operates. Satan is the ruler of this what? World. And James is saying to them, because they were embroiled and entrenched in these conflicts and they weren't resolving them, and this was sort of their modus of operandi, James is saying, "Look, you guys are a bunch of adulterers because you are loving the world more than you love God." And here's a principle. Whenever you and I love something more than we love God, when we love the world more than we love God, we are committing spiritual adultery on God. Why? Because the Bible says when you became a Christian, you are the bride of Christ. And you are married to Christ. You are married to God. And so when you love something more than God, you are two-timing God. You are shacking up with another lover. And God says, stop two-timing me. When you love the world more than you love me, and I'm no longer the object of your supreme affection, you are committing spiritual adultery. And listen, how many spiritual adulterers are in the church today? Listen, most of you probably have never committed physical adultery, but how many of us commit spiritual adultery? And listen, when anything takes precedence over God, whether it's sports, whether it's your children, whether it's your hobby, whether it's your job, listen, when that becomes more important than God, the Bible says you are committing spiritual adultery on God. You are shacking up with another lover. And listen, it says here, you become an enemy of God. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that God stands in opposition to you when you love the world more than you love God. You say, well, listen, I don't go to the go-go bars. I don't go to strip clubs. I'm not drinking Jack Daniels. Yeah, but listen, when Jesus is not first in your life, you may not be doing those things. But listen, when you adopt and you assimilate the values of this age you and I are considered worldly biblically. Now, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. 1 John chapter 2 says this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and all of its lusts are passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. In other words, John says we're to stop loving the system. You remember that song years ago? Some of you are young. You wouldn't remember this song. It was a song a lady sang on the radio. Torn between two lovers, feeling like a fool. Loving both of you is what? Breaking all the rules. And listen, a lot of Christians are torn between two lovers. And you see, God is a jealous God. He wants us to love Him supremely because notice, if you will, Verse 5, here is what he says to them, or do you think it's without reason the Scripture says that the Spirit who lives in us yearns jealousy? Now, this is very difficult of the Greek to translate, but the simplicity of it is this. God and the Holy Spirit want you all to himself because God is a jealous God. He doesn't want to share you with others in the sense that you love others more than him. Now, God wants you to enjoy His gifts. He wants you to enjoy material things. He wants you to enjoy other relationships, but He doesn't want those things to supplant Him because God is a jealous God in a good sense. When I was in high school, I dated a number of girls, and whenever I would date these girls, I had a good friend on my football team. Without fail, he would follow up behind me and try to steal my girlfriend away from me. And so finally, one day I had enough of it, and in the hallway, it came to blows. Him and I, I mean, we, we went at it in the hallway. And I was angry because I was like, you're just jealous. You're just jealous. That's not the kind of jealousy that the Bible's talking about, it's sinful jealousy. And I shouldn't have responded that way to him. But you know what? God is a jealous God in the good sense. He wants us to himself. Why? Because God knows that the world cannot satisfy. God knows that the flesh cannot satisfy. We all have tried it and we realize it's nice, but it doesn't bring ultimate contentment. And so God is a jealous God. He wants us all to himself. And when God is not the object of our supreme affection, you know what happens? We are committing spiritual adultery. Now, here's the point James is going to make here. He says to them and he says to you and I, we need to confess our spiritual adultery and we need to repent of it. We need to confess the worldly ways of resolving conflict because, listen, that church I just read to you earlier in North Carolina, they were resolving conflict the way the world resolves conflict. And James says, if you're going to resolve it, the first thing you need to do is confess it to God as sin and then repent of it and turn away from it. Notice what he says here, and this is one of the longest passages in the New Testament on confession and repentance. It's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible that deals with repentance. He says in verse 6, but he that is God gives greater grace. In other words, God's grace is greater than my sin, it's greater than my worldliness, it's greater than my ungodly resolution of conflict. If I'm willing to own up to it, confess it and repent of it, God's grace is greater than my sin. Doesn't Paul say that in Romans 6? Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. He says, God's grace is greater, therefore, on the basis of that, he says, God resists the proud, he resists people that are arrogant, I'm not solving conflict, you're always the problem, I'm not the problem, yeah, I love the world, what's the problem with that? God resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace and forgiveness to the humble. See, the humble say, God, I admit my sin, God, I admit I'm wrong, God, I shouldn't have said that. God, I humble myself before you. Listen, when you do that, God will always dispense his grace to you and I. Why? Because God's grace is greater than my sin. Listen, my sin is like a drop of water. God's grace is like the Pacific Ocean. You cannot outstrip the grace of God, but you've got to humble yourself. And then he says another, therefore, in verse 7, therefore, here's where it starts, confession and repentance, submit to God. Listen, you want to know why the church is in the mess it's in? Because we're not submitting to God. He says, submit to God. Don't submit to the world. Don't submit to self. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil was getting into this church, creating all kinds of rancor and all kinds of conflict. And he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says in verse 8, draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? Through prayer, through confession, through Bible reading, and he will draw near to you. In other words, James is saying the problem is not with God. God hasn't moved. The problem is with you and I. We get into the world. We get off into sin. We resolve conflict like the world. And again, listen, none of us are going to be perfect in resolving conflict. We may commit acts of the flesh, but that's different than a lifestyle. When you as a lifestyle act like the world, that's the problem that James is dealing here with. He's dealing with entrenchment, and he says this, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, that's your outward behavior, your hands, and then purify your hearts, that's dealing with sin on the inside. And then he says this, you're double-minded people. What is a double-minded person? It's a person that has one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity, and they're torn between two lovers. Now, we are to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. So God put us here and we're to live in the world. We shop, we do all these things, nothing wrong with that. But listen, we're not to be double-minded, and that was the problem here. They're too sold. They only come to God when they need him. But the rest of the time, they live just like the world, they love the world, they have affections for the world, and James says, you're double-minded, and then he says this in verse 9. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. You say, Mike, this is macabre. The church is not to do this. Doesn't the Bible say that we're to rejoice in the Lord? Absolutely. We are to sing a new song. We are to clap our hands. We are to celebrate. We are to rejoice. But listen, there are times where we are to mourn. We are to be miserable. We're to mourn. We're to weep. We're to turn our laughter. It must change into mourning and our joy into sorrow. See, this is confession and repentance. This is a deep cleansing. You know, when you go to the dentist, most of us hate going. Sometimes they do a quick cleaning. Clean your teeth. Some of you, it's... They clean your teeth, and then they say, okay, goodbye. You say, well, that was quick. That was 15 minutes. But then sometimes they do a deep cleaning. You ever had a deep cleaning? When you go home, your mouth is throbbing. You have to take Advil. That's what he's advocating here is a deep cleaning He says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so all these terms, there's imperatives in the Greek here, all these terms is basically saying this, you need to confess and repent of your worldly attitudes and how you're resolving conflict. He's saying, look, you're resolving conflict just like the world, you're acting like the world, you need to confess it and repent of it. Now, we all know what confession is. It's agreeing with God that what we did or how we're acting or how we're resolving conflict is wrong. But what is repentance? Repentance is a change in direction. In fact, it's a military term where a platoon would be watching in one direction. About face! And they go in the other direction. That's Repentance. In fact, one person put this on Facebook and I ended up putting it on my feed. It said this: quote, Repentance is not when you cry, repentance is when you what? Change, end quote. In other words, it's not enough just say, God, I'm sorry. You gotta be willing to work on those things whereby I turn from my sin and I submit myself to God. I was reading a story about a guy who decided to paint this church. They hired him. It was one of these uh, old-fashioned white churches and had a steeple. It had wood on the outside, and so they hired him. They said, we'll give you X amount of money to paint the church, and so he bought the paint, and it was a clear blue sky, beautiful, and as he got halfway up, he realized that he was going to run out of paint, and he didn't want to cut into his profits, so he was conniving. He ended up taking water and filling it up in the paint cans in order to dilute it And so he painted, he finally got to the top, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes this cloud, and a rainstorm just washes away all the paint. And he hears a voice from the cloud that says, repaint and thin no more. (laughs) James is saying, repaint and thin no more. And you know what? Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes, if you're like me, I have to confess and repaint. Confess and repaint. I have to keep doing it all the time. But that's part of dealing with the roots. Well, there's one final thing that you and I can do in dealing with conflict, and that is this: guard your words. Guard your words. How many of us are words get us into trouble? Our words end up generating conflict. We say something we shouldn't say. Well, this was happening there. Notice, if you will, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. James says to them, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. In other words, they were speaking against one another, and what they were doing is criticizing each other, backbiting, and they were judging others. When you start judging other people, it's going to come out of your mouth, and you're going to be critical. Now, as I said, when we looked at chapter 2, the Bible says that Christians are to judge. If anyone says, judge not, lest you be judged, they're taking that Scripture out of context. We are called to judge. John 7, 24, Jesus said, judge with a righteous judgment. What the Bible condemns in relation to judging is hypocritical judging. When you are condemning others and you're guilty of the same thing, or when you look down your nose at other people, that's the kind of judging the Bible condemns. And that's what was going on here. They were playing judge, jury, and executioner. They were judging other people. They were looking down. It was coming out of their mouth. And here's what James says to them. He says this, But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of it. In other words, God is the one who is the judge. He uses his word to judge other people. Stop playing the role of God. We've all done that. He says in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Yep, 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 yep. They were going around doing this all the time. And listen. James's point is this: you gotta keep your mouth shut. We gotta guard our words because listen, words will often generate conflict. How many of us have said something to our spouse and it leads to a fight? How many of us have said something to our children? How many of us have said something to our friends? Sometimes, and it's a good place, good time to joke and have fun, and we tease people, there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes we can hurt people. I've been guilty of that. Our words get us in trouble. I was reading a story about a young couple who had been arguing, and neither of them wanted to apologize or concede their position. They were driving down a country road, not saying a word to each other. They passed a barnyard of mules and pigs, and the husband said to the wife sarcastically, Are these relatives of yours? To which the wife replied, Yes, I married into the family. Our words get us in trouble, do they not? We say things we shouldn't say. As I told you a couple weeks ago, I met my brother in Miami where I grew up to help my widowed mom with her house. My brother owns a catering company in California, does really well. He flew with um, his son, who's 10 years old, to Miami, and we took a break after helping clean it. We went to Key Largo and we did some fishing. That's my nephew there, the short guy, and uh, we caught this barracuda. Now, they were amazed, the guys that took us out. Uh, by the way, it was so hot, you almost couldn't enjoy it. And the guy who took us out said, in 30 years, I've never seen the water this hot. we got to go deeper in order to get the fish. And so they were chumming the water right by the reef. They were throwing out oatmeal. And they said, we hope that they'll feed in a frenzy. Well, nothing was happening. And so my brother, knowing his son was about to pass out, he was in tears, he said, hey, listen, take us to an area where we can catch junk fish. We'd rather catch something than nothing. So we went to this area, we started reeling them in, and boom, we caught this barracuda. Barracuda love yellowtail. So I had one yellowtail on. And uh, I'm reeling it in. It was huge. Of course, I'm a fisherman. I'm lying because my lips are moving. And so I'm trying to reel in this yellow tail. And all of a sudden, it gets light on me. I thought, what? And I lift it up, and all I have is the head. A barracuda had grabbed it, snatched it. Anyway, we caught this barracuda. Look at its teeth in the next slide. That's its teeth. And he told me it's, they're serrated all the way around. He says, stick your hand in there. You'll lose your finger or fingers. You know, some of us have barracuda mouths. We have Gillette tongues. They're very, very sharp. And it can generate conflict. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up what? Anger. We all know this, and we do it anyway. We get in the flesh. So if you want to reduce conflict or resolve it, watch your words. So what have we learned in this two-week series on resolving conflict out of James? First of all, cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. Cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. Secondly, identify sinful roots that are causing the conflict. Thirdly, engage God in prayer. Fourthly, confess and repent of your worldly sins that are leading to conflict. And finally, guard your words. Now, before we leave, I want to give you some other suggestions on how to resolve conflict you're not going to have time to jot these down. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, but I put some of them on the guest central table out there. If you want to avail yourself to them, you can. Here are some other suggestions in resolving conflict. Learn to overlook minor offenses and give people the benefit of the doubt. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of what? Sins. Stop wearing your sleeves. Stop wearing your feelings on your sleeve. Some Christians get offended by everything. Well, you know, I went to the I went to the 4th of July church picnic and I made these toothpicks that are like the 4th of July and no one noticed them. I'm leaving the church. You think I'm kidding? There are some Christians that get offended by everything. One person said this, "A spirit of offense will cause you to hear things that aren't being said." See, some people have this spirit of offense. And you know what? Your spouse is going to hurt you and say things. There are times where I've said something to Laura, and I know Laura bit her tongue. There are times where she has said something to me, and I said, you know what? I could really get an argument here, but I'm going to let it go. It's the same in the church. Now, you say, oh, I can't let it go. That leads to the second principle. If something bothers you and you can't let it go, go to the person privately and share your offense. See, we don't want to do that. What we'd rather do is pick up the phone and gossip. If you know someone has something against you, take the initiative and seek to resolve it. Well, who cares about them? They're immature. I'm not going to bother with it. No, go to that person. If you know Jesus said they have something against you, try to resolve it. Seek a win-win solution if possible without compromising except being wronged in some situations to avoid hurting your testimony or the testimony of the church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, the Corinthians were taking each other to court. He says, why not be wronged? Why are you taking your junk before the unbelieving world? He says, the fact that you're going to court, he says, you've already lost. He says, why not be wronged? Now listen, there are times to deal with issues and there are times to take the wrong. Watch your body language and your tone when resolving conflict. You always act like that. That body language is not going to cut it. Accept being wronged in some situations to avoid hurting your testimony. Watch your body language. Choose to forgive regardless of outcomes. Regardless if the person responds the way you want, choose to forgive. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. See, we need to have a spirit of forgiveness. Learn to listen and see their perspective. Sometimes that's hard to do. We run our mouth. We don't listen to the other person. Admit and apologize when you are wrong. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. Agree to disagree charitably. Sometimes it's not a sin issue. Sometimes you just disagree and you have to do it charitably. Avoid verbal attacks and overgeneralizations. You're always like your mother. That doesn't work. Learn to communicate effectively. Sometimes, some people do not communicate in the church, in their marriage, in their home. They don't communicate. Listen, you have to learn to communicate. You say, well, I wasn't raised that way. Well, listen, you have to unlearn certain things. Or miscommunication. Too often we miscommunicate. We've all been there. Well, hon, that's not what I meant. I'm, I'm sorry. And then this one. In certain situations, separate from toxic relationships where individuals are not interested in conflict resolution and they seek to continually generate conflict. Now, you can't do this in your marriage if you don't have grounds for divorce. And I don't take this one lightly, but there are times where relationships can be toxic and you need to separate from them. Why? Because they're so negative and so destructive and those people are not interested in conflict resolution. There are times to say, look, I I can't be a part of this. It's toxic. Now, some of you swing the pendulum and rather than resolve conflict, this is how you respond. You don't want to do that. Two more. Deal with your filters and emotional baggage. We all have filters, we all have emotional baggage, but some people have so much baggage, everything gets filtered through their baggage, and that's why they're offended all the time. They're not dealing with their emotional scars. They're not dealing with the junk in the trunk. And so they hear everything through a filter. And then finally... Develop a servant's mentality by putting others first and taking the higher ground. Sometimes it's better to serve than to get in the argument. Find ways to serve. There are times to bury something and there are times to address it. It takes wisdom. So let me ask you a question this morning as we close. Is there someone this morning that you need to forgive? Someone that you're angry at? That you need to forgive. Now listen, forgiveness and trust are different. I may forgive you, I may not trust you. But are you holding a grudge against somebody? Because listen, the Bible says that we're not to hold on to anger and bitterness. Why? Because it says that because God has forgiven us such a great debt, we need to forgive others. And when I'm tempted not to forgive, I remind myself of the debt that God has forgiven me. And listen, God forgives me day after day after day. Who am I to withhold forgiveness from somebody else? Is there a person you need to go to and talk to? You say, well, you know what? i got a parent that molested me. They're dead. What do I do? Put a chair in front of you. Pretend your parents there or whoever else, your uncle, your cousin, or whoever, and forgive them and say, God, I forgive this person for what they did to me, and release them. Is there someone you need to get right with? Now watch this. Are you listening? Say Amen. I cannot say that I'm right with God if I'm not willing to get right with my fellow man. The Bible's clear on that. Now, you may try to get right with that person, and if they don't want anything to do with that, God absolves you. Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But if you take the stance, I don't care. I had a guy one time in counseling, he said, listen... He's with his wife. They were acrimonious. He said, Mike, he said, the only thing I care about is this. I don't care about this. I said, let me explain something to you. This is not going to be right if this is not right. And so God wants us to resolve those issues. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us of the need to resolve conflict. It's always ever-present, we deal with it on a regular basis. I thank you, Lord, that conflict doesn't have to be destructive. It can be beneficial. It makes us more like Christ. And, Father, we know it can be extremely painful to have to address our issues in a marriage, in a home, even within our government. And if you're sitting here this morning and there's someone you need to forgive, would you do that right now? Would you forgive them for what they did to you? Just take a couple seconds to do that. Is there someone that you need to go to in order to get things right? I want to encourage you this week to make it right as far as it depends on you. Father, no marriage, no church, no government's going to be conflict-free, but, Father, you do want us to help resolve these things. And, Father, I confess to you the world has gotten into the church today. We are so worldly. The American church loves the world more than it loves you. God, forgive us for that. Forgive me. And I pray, Father, that we would love you above all. It's a daily battle, and, Father, you know this, Fill us with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name.